Thanks so much, Eric. As some of you know, I teach a class to freshmen, uh, 14, 15 years old, and they're thinking about getting their driver's license at some point. And you may, may have heard this illustration, but it seems fitting for 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because most of them want to be able to drive because it spells freedom, both for them and for the parents as, as well. So they're growing up, there's new opportunities, but in order for them really to get the full benefits of what driving offers, they have to follow the rules of the road. As long as they're following those rules, stopping at stop signs, obeying speed limits, or if they're not, they're not getting caught. And as long as that's happening, then they're able to go pretty much anywhere. And it, trust builds up as well with, with parents if they are where they say they're going to be and they come home at a responsible time. And also for just people out on the roads as well, we understand there's always the joke when you see a kid who's turning 16 and they say, I've got my license. And everybody says, let's stay off the roads because you're afraid of maybe their lack of responsibility you've observed for 16 years. And now they're behind a two-ton machine and you're the person driving next to them. Uh, so we know what that's like. And the reason we have rules for the road are because it protects everybody around from destruction. And also, if you obey it, then you have the freedom to go in the right way. So those rules are designed for your good and for everybody else's good as well. And there's a direct parallel to the moral realm. And this is what God has revealed in his word, that he's given us instruction, he's given us rules and guidelines, and they're there to protect everybody else, but also to allow you to, to, to live well and to experience all that comes from staying within those moral parameters. It depends, of course, on your perspective on those things. Some people say, I don't like them. They feel restrictive. And you're certainly welcome to go and try that out. But if what God's word says is true, ultimately speaking, it's going to be damaging and harmful to you as well as to those who are around you. In the book of Corinthians, then, Paul is writing to a young church, and that church tasted and saw that the Lord is good, walking in his ways is good, and it's a stark contrast to the world around them. But as time goes on, and he's written back to them, this appears to be the second letter, as we'll see, that he's written to them, they have kind of slipped into not only old behaviors, but some behaviors that are even worse on a moral spectrum than those who are around them. And he says, this cannot be. You've misunderstood the very reason that Christ has come. Remember in chapter one, he says, you are the called out ones. You're different. You're not a part of the kingdom of darkness. You're a part of the kingdom of light. And so you are different from others. And that happened not because of anything in of yourself. We sang about the cross of Christ, the great leveling ground. It's only because of him that you are where you are. And now that gospel, that reality has a claim on you. You are labeled as a follower of Christ. And so be distinctive. Be separate. And that's not so that you look better than others, but you will be different and you're living out life the way that it ought to be. Left alone to our own devices, right from the beginning of the Bible, we'll choose a different pathway. But you have tethered yourself to Christ. So walk in this way. And the Corinthian church has had a difficult time. We are calling this entire series the beautiful 
messy bride of Christ. So here's the messy part that we're getting into right now. But also beautiful because it's in the context of the mess as the church is doing what the church ought to do. That's fertile ground for the, for the gospel to be applied again and again. So the title of this message is Taking Sin and Restoration Seriously. If we're uh, uh, gathered together as a church, Paul is saying we have to take both of those things very seriously. And in fact, unless we do, we will stray off course. So let's look at this together with that in mind and, and just take one section at a time, starting in verses 1 through 5, where we see that the goal of discipline is restoration. And when I say discipline, I'm talking about somebody who has gone off, off course and needs that course correction, and sometimes that's hard. It, it's the image of the shepherd, sometimes, you know, the gentleness, but oftentimes you need a prod because you're wandering in the wrong direction, and when you commit to a group of people following Christ, you're really committing to both of those. But if you're somebody who's undergoing discipline of any sort, the ultimate goal is restoration. It's not discipline for the sake of you looking shameful or discipline for the sake of us looking okay. It's for your restoration ultimately. Now, those who are parents maybe have an, an easy carryover, crossover. You know, it's, it's, we want uh, children, if they're going astray, to be restored to right relationships with parents and with God and with anything else. And even if you don't have kids, you know what that's like as well. In work relationships or in relationships with your parents, just in general. And that is the goal inside the church as well. Here's, here's what Paul says. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you're proud? Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I am with you in spirit and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. So if you were unfamiliar with this passage, you understand why I've said this is a hard passage. This is pretty intense stuff that's going on right here. What do we do with this? How are we to understand this? So the first thing in verse 1 is apparently in this congregation, uh, there's somebody who's been intimate uh, with probably a stepmother, or else it would have said mother. But that's inappropriate, uh, certainly according to God's standards back in Le Leviticus, but also in comparison with the culture of the day, that's something that would be shameful even there and looked down on. But this church gathering apparently, for some reason, uh, is having a, the wrong response to that. I mean, th their response here, apparently, is you are proud. And so that's something that they shouldn't be responding. There's who, who knows why or how it's being expressed, but Paul knows that their response is wrong. Not only are they 
proud in some way of this or see it as at the very least, okay, not that big of a deal. They're negligent in their response because they're not taking sin seriously. They're just okay. Not only with the culture of the day, but something beyond that. And Paul's saying that is wrong. In fact, he says the right response right there is, shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? When there's this level of sin from within, it's not a reason for any sort of fist bumping. Wow, you're the man. Look at you. It's sadness, grief, sorrow. There's an undoneness about this experience that they should have done. There's, there's, you're torn apart, or as one of my friends used to say, you're tore up from the floor up. I mean, this is hard. And the right response, too, is discipline. Why is this man still walking among you, apparently, with no confrontation whatsoever, and quite the opposite, some sort of applause, celebrating sin instead of disciplining it? And so what Paul goes on to say is, I'm there, I'm passing judgment, I'm not there physically, but I know this is wrong, and you need to act as well, it kind of if I were there, he's a bit of a parent, and these are sort of children, but he says, you need to act as if I am there and treat this sin as it ought to be treated. And so when you're gathered together, hand this person over. Uh, so the discipline here, as we talk about the goal of discipline, discipline itself here if, in this context is done in community. Um, now, we see there is a process here. So in verse 9, he's written a previous letter, and they've misunderstood some things. It seems like probably this case also has been something. We don't know how long it's been uh, going on, but it's gotten to the point where steps of discipline should have been taken, so it didn't get to this point, but they ignored those. And now it's this big thing that is, is well beyond the context of an individual reality, and it's spilled over into community, as we'll see in the next verses as well. And Paul says there is a community element to this. And we have to do this right. We know that even in the story of the Christian church, there's shunning of individuals that is, has maybe been mis misapplied, and so we have to, to make sure that we, we tread lightly, but not at the expense of, address, of addressing sin. Here it's done with the authority of Christ, and in the hope of restoration. And that all happens in the final verses there. When I'm with you and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan. Now, when we do a membership here at Redeemer, not every church has membership. But one of the membership questions that if you are a member to remind you, we ask you is, do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to promote its purity and its peace. One of the reasons that we have even the membership process is you have an opportunity to say, yeah, we're going to respond to the leaders God has put in place. And if there's a, a, an opportunity or time when discipline is needed, I will listen to you. And that you don't want that to be abused, of course. It has historically, but hopefully we have systems in place that keep us from that. So this may, this may make you second guess your church membership, if you've already said yes, perhaps. Hopefully not. Because especially in our culture of this day, 
We need to be disciplined. We, we know we're prone to wander. We're sheep that go astray. So we're saying, if I go astray, will you please make sure I do not do that? Of course, when you start going astray, what's the last thing you want? Somebody telling you don't do that. And there's consequences. But that's exactly what you need, isn't it? So when your mind is right, you're making commitments. You've done this. Those of you who are married, you've made vows. One of the reasons I think weddings that gather more together in, in a sense are great is because you're saying you hold us accountable to these vows and if somebody sees that you're going astray there's a there's a stake even on you to say hey brother you can't do that you're going down the wrong path and we're making that commitment to each other even i think in membership publicly will you yes i'm going to submit to the discipline of the church now, what does that even mean? Well, we're attached to the Presbyterian Church in America, and we have this wonderful thing called the Book of Church Order that has kind of pounded out some steps that we take in a case where discipline's needed. The first thing it talks about is systematic training under the authority of God's Scripture. So whether you realize it or not, even if you're not a member, one of the basic marks of a biblical church is teaching God's word. And as you attend, you are being disciplined or instructed by God's word. If anything that is said in the context of scripture delivered to you has an ounce of conviction, you're being disciplined by God. And that's the very first and most important step. That's why we gather together. That's why we listen to God's word and people faithfully declaring God's word because it's the first line of defense. If somebody has gone to the point of this man right here, there have been road bumps along the way that you just plow right through. And any of these things are road, they're road bumps, they're, they're blocks along the way to stop you from continuing down this path. And the very first one, that little speed bump on the pathway to sin, is God's word being declared and proclaimed. And if God is taking his word and maybe shining into a dark part of your heart, but you just want to ignore it, you're on the wrong pathway. So be sensitive to God's word as it is declared, both from up front and in the context of community with people who are speaking scripture. So that's the very, very first step. You know, we talk, the, the Bible talks about the process, too, of confrontation. You go to an individual, bring somebody else. And then we have a group of elders called the session who may need to intervene if somebody is not responding. And then ultimately it gets to this public scene that is here in 1 Corinthians 5. But hopefully it never gets to that. The, the second kind of step is to offer admonition. So there's a formal reproof. And I've been through this process before where somebody has been confronted and, and it would say, you need to stop doing that. And they, they just don't listen. So there's an official letter from the elder saying, we're warning you, you need to stop this because this is injurious to you and also to the cause of Christ. If they continue not to listen, then there's suspension from the sacraments. I don't know how this works out if somebody, you say, you're no longer allowed to take the Lord's Supper as a, a temporary measure for you to see that you're out of fellowship with Christ. If they come up to the table, we've got to have bouncers who are maybe tackling them. I, I don't really know. No, give it back to me. Give it back. But the point is, the gravity of what you're doing is so severe. And in a sense, it's linked to the Passover, Christ the Passover lamb. The Lord's Supper is a picture of the Passover and forgiveness and fellowship and oneness. And you've broken that. 
And this is, this is grave and this is serious. And if you continue in ongoing sin and you will not listen and your ears are stopped up, ultimately speaking then, if you're a member of the church, we have to say, you are no longer a part of this fellowship because you're maligning the name of Christ. And in fact, now we're treating you in verse 5 as somebody who, in the language of handing over to Satan, as I take it, is a non-believer. Christ is not your Savior. There's only two gods you can serve in this world. The God of the Bible or the God of, of this world, Satan. That's it. Those are your choices. You may not be aware of that. You can disagree with me, but according, according to the Bible, that's true. And when we say, you're a part of this body, we're seeking Christ passionately. Come along with us. And you refuse to acknowledge blatant sin repeatedly. Then there's a time at which we say you are no longer a member. You're no longer. And we're going to treat you as a non-believer. Which, ironically, we want, if you're not on board with this, we want you here. Right? That's great. But the, the vision of the picture is of somebody who's not a member of this body. And you can enter. How? How do you become a member? Through repentance, through confession of sin, through acknowledging that you are serving the wrong God, maybe ultimately yourself. And that's just Satan dressed up in disguise. But not, not serving the God of the Bible. And you re-enter through confession. But this person's completely unrepentant unwilling to do it. And because of that, it comes to this point of excommunication. And you know, these, these days too, in a very litigious society, you have to be very cautious about how this process occurs. You could end up with lawsuits, right? It happens. If somebody maybe gets to the point where there is a public uh, expression of a, what, what they would say is a private sin, they may sue you. This happens, which I think is interesting because the next chapter is about lawsuits, but the person who should not be doing the suing is the person who feels offended, is the person who should be repenting but isn't, and thinks you're the one to blame for it. You see how it's messy? Just a little bit messy? One of the reasons that it's helpful to be attached even denominationally is recently, if you're familiar with the church in the United States... There have been a significant number of abuse cases that have arisen. The abuse, in these cases, what, what tends to happen, and it's happened in large denominational settings, is people focus on the, the abuser and maybe protecting the, the, the church itself at the expense of the person who's been abused and at the expense of the victim, and they're just left, either doubted or untreated in terms of shepherding. So our denomination over the past couple of years has done a lot of work and just released a 220-page document on how you go about cases like this as they arise that both protects the integrity of the church and acknowledges the hurt of the person who's been wounded. I'm grateful for that. I'm not going to read all 220 pages. But it's a wonderful resource for if something like this arises, to make sure it's not just the person who's done wrong that is being rightly corrected, but the person who has been wronged as well. That's something that's largely missed. 
Now, again, denominationally, we have a system of courts. So we have, we're a church, and there are elders, and these cases begin at the lowest possible level. Let's involve as few people as possible. That's the one-to-one, and then the two, and then if it gets to be a little bit bigger than that, the session, as we call them, the elders are doing these steps along the way, and and if it can't even be resolved, we push it up to a larger court, which is the presbytery, the regional gathering of PCA pastors. And they may need to offer some insight. And I've been part of cases like this, too, where they deliberate and push back down and say, here's what needs to happen. And in some cases, it can't even be resolved there. And it goes all the way up to what we call the General Assembly once a year that are trying to grapple with some of these bigger issues and do justice to what needs to be done and push it back down. Perfect? Nah. But it is kind of nice, and this is one of the parts that I appreciate too, when you get to sticky moral issues, that you're not alone, and that you have others who are offering insight and wisdom that's collected over not just case history, but church history for what you should do. But one thing you can't do when you come to a text like this is pretend that sin isn't serious. And in fact, Paul goes on to say it's so incredibly serious that you have to understand if you treat sin lightly and don't go through this discipline process, it's affecting the entire community. This is a very different notion than my private sin has no public, public effect on you. I would argue that's not a biblical reality. Certainly not within the context of community. My integrity does have an effect on you in one way or another. Whether I'm aware of it or you're aware of it, I, I don't know. But here is this imagery of the way in which my, my behavior affects the entire community. And the images of yeast or leavened bread, it's something that's put into bread to, to, to make it rise. During the Exodus event, it said, don't put the yeast in there. So it shows you the urgency of rescue from sin. But the image here is of a little bit of yeast that is not morally upright and is not repentant, affecting the entire batch of dough. And that's why there's a community element here. He says in verse 6, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast. You may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. Paul says there's a moral reality here to that physical experience of a little bit of yeast affecting the entire batch. That's the same thing here. When, when this is being tolerated, when you're harboring that from within, it's actually affecting everybody. In fact, if there's any yeast that should be added, it's yeast of sincerity and truth. I mean, it's, it's like we're in a new era here. You've embraced Christ, so now let's change from not even pretending that we need any yeast at all. If there is yeast, it's sincerity and truth. Be honest. Don't hide. This is what happened back in the garden, the very first thing when sin entered into the world. God looks for Adam and Eve. Where are you? And they're hiding from God. That's the old yeast 
The new yeast is sincerity and truth. Be real, be honest, and be open. Certainly with God and also with others. And if you do that, that's the kind of yeast, if there's anything working out in this new batch of dough, that's what it is. So you can be the very first to repent and say, yes, you're right, I'm wrong. You know what that does? That's like yeast that works it through and creates a spirit of honesty and sincerity and truth among everybody else. But when you hide it, it's having the opposite effect. Maybe you don't know it right away, but how many of you have seen somebody cherish and cultivate hidden sin on the outside? They look great, and then it's exposed. And the damage that can be done is almost impossible to calculate. This is why leaders in the church are, are really said, you, you know what, here's a standard for living with, according to God. Yours is even higher because the damage done, if you've been cherishing sin and it's exposed, is so hard to calculate. And when somebody who's supposed to be a leader in the church wanders from the faith or has an affair or does something like this, what do you think it does for you who's embraced that person as somebody who's chasing after Christ? It can be destructive. A lot of people these days talk about deconstructing their faith. What they mean by that, generally speaking, is they've taken a look at the church and they, they say, I don't know if that's an accurate picture of what I should be following, and largely because they're full of hypocrites. Or if they align with that, then I'm out. So what do I really believe? And they're kind of taking away their foundations. But when somebody who's a, a church leader, even just a, a vibrant member of the community of faith, has been cherishing sin for a long period of time and it's exposed, it's just putting fuel on that. Yeah, that's what I suspected. There was a, a man in our presbytery, since you're familiar with that language, uh, pastor, pretty vocal individual, you know, speaks at these public meetings and um, left his wife, had a congregation, maybe, maybe about this size, decided he was finished with his old wife because some new person had come in there and his, his hope was, was resting and finding the satisfaction he was chasing in this woman. And he was the one declaring from up front, you can't find satisfaction like that. It's only in the gospel. What do you think that did to his wife, his children, the congregation, the community, when that gets out? So there were a handful of uh, other pastors who, who went and pleaded, don't do this. Repent. Completely unrepentant. And through the process, it was said, you, you've been stripped of your ordination credentials, basically excommunicated. You could no longer be a pastor. It's like, I don't care. And we wept for the pain that it caused his family and for the, for the cause of Christ, for the sadness and confusion that comes in my own heart when you say, I don't get it, I don't understand. How can this possibly be the case? It seemed like everything was okay. And now just wanton. Five years he lived that way, and just about a year ago, he came and confessed, publicly repented in weeping and tears, recognized this is not the way I should be heading. 
Is it worth it to get that great testimony? No, of course not. But part of what's happened here is what verse 5 is saying back here a little bit. As he was treated as somebody no longer a part of this fellowship, the power of the Lord Jesus present, handing this man over to Satan. Why? So that the sin nature may be destroyed and the spirit saved on the day of the Lord. I don't know why or how, but somehow this person needed to wander in such a way that what he thought would satisfy him, he finally realizes never will. And so he re-enters. It's a handing over to Satan, as it were. You can enjoy the consequences of your sin. See how, how does that work in for you? You know, one of the things about that passage I find compelling as well, with the backdrop of Job in mind, is God even uses Satan, kind of like a puppet, <laughs> sometimes. He's ultimately in control and in charge. And even when we hand over, as it were, to Satan say, I'm trusting that God will use the mechanisms of this world, even the prince of darkness, to get to a point where that person comes to their end and says, wow, I was never really at the bottom of my sin to begin with. And the only hope I have now is to be saved by faith. That's it. There's a lot of people in the church who think they believe that, but we're cherishing so much sin in our hearts that we say otherwise. And one of the things that's powerful about this passage for me as well is the final section of it, where Paul starts talking about the realities of we have higher standards. Because this is a shocking thing in verse 1. Like, I would never do that. But you see what Paul does here. I've written in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. He's saying, of course, you have to make friends with those who are around you. Uh, you can't just completely separate yourself. We're talking about the community here. And since it's clear this person's done something very shocking and horrifying, you need to deal with that person in the right way right at the very beginning. But here's the thing. You are that person. He start, he's going to start saying. Somewhere on that scale, you're fitting in there. Take that person's sin seriously, but take your own as well. You see what he does here. He says... Now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother but is sexually immoral. Okay, we've got that. We've kind of dealt with that. That's hard and uh, trying to get there. But how about this? Or greedy. Do you really need to go any farther? If greed has a, a hold of your heart and you want more and you'll do anything to get it, maybe be subtle, maybe maybe not report things on your taxes that you should? A sin of omission, perhaps? Or, I don't know, maybe you can come up with your own things because one of the things that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount says, here are these rules, they're just getting to the heart. You can you could go live life according to the rule, but your heart is running amok. You haven't committed murder, but you're angry at somebody. You're on the hook too. Step number one, draw that circle. Step inside of it and say, God, please change everything inside the circle. And Jesus says, when you do that, then you can look at the speck of dust in somebody else's eye. But here he's saying at the end of this chapter, if you're greedy, an idolater, you're worshiping anything besides God. A slanderer, you speak poorly about somebody. Gossip. 
A drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat. See, he's putting all of us on the hook. You see that, don't you? And so he says at the end of the day, when you're looking back up at chapter, at verse 1 and saying, we've got to take sin seriously, we have to take restoration seriously, you better start by taking sin seriously in your own life. It's a step-by-step process. This man didn't just end up here. Somebody along the way didn't put the roadblocks in place. Now, what about your heart? I mean, think of Job who says, I made a covenant with my eyes that I would not look lustfully at a woman. And he's taken sin seriously. When he would, in Job chapter 1, offer sacrifices, not just for him, but his kids, he was concerned. What if they've done something? Well, he's taking sin seriously. But he's also taking restoration seriously because we all need it. I love the words of Josh Bales, a friend and songwriter, who says, only the sinner, only the weak, only the man who lies and steals and cheats, only the woman who runs around, only the child with the selfish mouth, only prostitutes and murderers and crooked businessmen, only those who have no alibi, only those who cannot hide their sin, only the dirty, never the clean, only the beggar, men, never the king, only the messed up, never the the maid, only the sinner, Jesus saves. So that's the posture of the heart entering the kingdom. But what, what I think Paul argues in other places is that's the continued posture, posture of the heart moving on in the kingdom as well. If we're not quick to repent, quick to say, Lord, you need to shine the light into my hearts, the darkest parts, so I can confess them, then ultimately speaking, we're going to be looking for our own ways to resolve it and either we'll hide it, blame others, or do all kinds of crazy things. Minimize how great the sin is. But the gospel says you have got to deal with it the way that God offers. And we've, I think I put this up here in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So that's the starting point. So it's not, we don't want to minimize the actions and necessity of doing this. And what I love right in the middle of this is Paul is kind of baked into this text, the picture of Christ as our Passover. That's, that's both an appeal to say Christ sacrificed himself for us, therefore walk in holiness. And a reminder, Christ sacrificed for us. So when you fail to walk in holiness, there is a sacrifice offered there is a way forward. If you don't take that way, then you're going to have to deal with it in your own in some way. You're going to blame somebody else, blame yourself, be swallowed up in shame and self-loathing or other loathing. But Christ is your Passover. He's already sacrificed once for all. So that's why we take sin seriously, but also restoration. This means there's always hope. Then for me, me and you, we need to say, where, where, where am I on that road? And how do I take more seriously the sin that's creeping in my heart? For me, the last couple of weeks, God has exposed my unforgiveness, how I do not want to forgive others, not in the way that I ought. I thought I, I, thought I was, but it's clear I'm not, based on the response of my heart. And what about you? 
And I'm driven then not to self-loathing, but to, cross, to the cross to say, okay, God, do your work in me. That can't be the, 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 the seed that springs up into the root of bitterness, right? That springs up into just a tree that's consuming my life. Wouldn't Satan love that? But I have the gospel that says, no, I can take it to the cross and he will shine that light on me and then say, but you are forgiven. Now go and sin no more. Father, I pray for our own hearts that today we would take both sin and restoration seriously and give us, boy, I'll tell you, the the kind of moxie that not only is self-evaluative but willing to confront others when we see sin at work. The wisdom to do it in a way that hopefully is winsome enough to point them back to Christ. Keep us from scandal, Lord. Please spare us from that. And even as we wrestle with our own sin, may we deal with it in such a way that the gospel is central and that even in what some intend for evil and harm is used by you for good, for the intention and purpose of spreading your kingdom. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. That's a great text, actually, to take question and answers on. Uh, But 